Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah. Well, you can't even lead the horse to water. You know, it doesn't want to come, it's not going to come. If the partner is not willing to see the problem, then the wife has a decision to make. The one, can I be with this person with their porn addiction, or can I not be? Either is reasonable as far as I'm concerned. I'm not here to say which it should be. Yeah. The wife could say, well, that's his problem. As long as he treats me decently and he's honest with me and doesn't lie about it and... Um, It's not eating up the family money, and he's a good father. You know, I mean, the wife could say that, and then let him deal with it or not deal with it. But it's not my issue. Or the wife could say, "I can't stand it. The idea upsets me too much. It makes me sick." I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona, and this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with Dr. Gabor Maté for Harvest Series. He is a Hungarian-born physician based in Canada, author of many bestsellers, amongst them When the Body Says No and The Myth of Normal. He is renowned for his work in the fields of addiction, trauma, and mind-body health. We already have two interviews with Gabor Maté in this podcast that you can listen to, one about trauma and one about how to be authentic. But this episode is about addictions. I interviewed him during a powerful retreat organized by Harvest in Kaplankaya about compassionate inquiry. Hello, Gabor. Hi, hi, Rose. And thank you uh, so much for uh, being here in Kaplankaya. Regarding addictions, let's start with the question number one, as uh, we all think we know the definition of an addiction, but let's clarify with you, what is an addiction? Well, what is your definition of addiction? Addiction is something like you can't refrain of doing. Yeah. You're doing and it hurts you in a way? Okay. But well, that's a good part of it, but it's not enough because somebody who's got OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, they also keep doing something that they don't want to do, like wash their hand a hundred times or whatever. And, but that's not an addiction. Okay. And the difference is that an addiction, somebody finds some pleasure or relief in and therefore craves, but then they suffer negative consequences and they still can't give it up. So the person with OCD doesn't crave what they're doing, they just have to do it. The addict, in the short term, loves what they do because it gives them pleasure or relief. So they're craving it all the time, but it still continues doing it despite the negative consequences. So that's what an addiction is. And most people, when they think of addiction, they think of drugs, substances, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, whatever. But actually, according to this definition, You can also be addicted to eating, or to sex, or to shopping, or to gambling, or to uh, pornography, or to the internet, or to your cell phone, or to work, or to extreme sports, or to relationships, to almost anything. So the issue is not the behavior on the outside, but what's driving it from the inside. If you're seeking pleasure or relief, therefore you crave it, and it's got negative consequences, you've got an addiction. It doesn't matter what it looks like from the outside. 
So you're seeking uh, pleasure or relief. So um, you don't have an addiction because you don't like yourself and you want to destroy yourself? No, you're not trying to destroy yourself. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, I don't know, but I gave you this definition. According to that definition, have you ever had any kind of an addictive behavior? And I'm not going to ask what, yeah. but have you ever had... Food, probably, uh, yeah, yeah. Something, okay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What did it do for you in the short term? What short term, like great pleasure, yeah, of course. Pleasure. Yeah. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, it's a good thing, yeah. 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 So addictions are always designed to give you good things. They're not designed to destroy you. Okay. They may destroy you, but that's not their intention. Okay. Their intention is to make your life better. And most people say addiction gives them pain relief or it numbs them or it gives them escape from stress or it gives them a sense of control or a sense of belonging or a sense of inner peace. Whatever it is, these are good things. So then the question is, say in your life, but in anybody's life, what's missing? So, I mean, look, we're in this beautiful earth with all these, everything that's available to us. Why would somebody not have enough pleasure? Why would they lose their sense of pleasure? Or why would they, somebody lose their sense of inner peace or their sense of belonging? Or their, why are they in pain? Why are they in distress? The addiction is not the primary problem. The addiction is an attempt to solve the problem. But the problem is of some discomfort with life, some sort of emotional pain. And so my mantra around addiction is don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. Basically, addiction is an attempt to resolve human pain. And why are people in pain? Because they're traumatized. And usually it comes from uh, childhood? Always. Always. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Unless uh, it's a later trauma, I guess. Uh, it's always related yeah. to trauma because we can't avoid pain as human beings. We can't. We can't avoid disappointment. We can't avoid grief. It's part of life. But if people have had a healthy, connected childhood, they'll be able to handle the pain or ask for help. But they won't have to escape from it in a form of some kind of addictive behavior. For 12 years, I worked in Vancouver, British Columbia, in what is the Western world's most concentrated area of drug use. I mean, we have more people in a few square block radius using all kinds of drugs than anywhere else in France or England or United States or anywhere else. And it's really a horrific place to visit if you've never seen it before. Okay. In my five years of work there, I, I worked with hundreds of females Every single one of them had been sexually abused as children. Every single one. I'm not saying that everybody who's sexually abused becomes addicted. Nor am I saying that everybody who's addicted was sexually abused. But I am saying that the more trauma you experience, including sexual abuse, the greater the risk of addiction. And that's been proven in many studies. So it, it all has to do with childhood pain, I think. Okay. And you become addicted when uh, you cannot cope anymore with your, uh, with your trauma? Yeah. Uh, in fact, a lot of people have told me that the addiction saved their lives because without it, they would have committed suicide. Now, which brings up another point, which in this workshop here at Klopankaya, which you were there today, some people say they had a happy childhood. They remember that there was somebody today. Oh, I had a happy childhood. Well, very often, so sometimes I get this, somebody says to me, well, you know, hey, doctor, I mean, I had an addiction, but I had a happy childhood. And I say, well, give me three minutes. And like today, you know, so I'm not saying that every childhood was severely traumatic, but in every addicted person's life, there was some pain 
that was never resolved in childhood, and that's the trauma, the pain that you still carry. Are there some kind of people more inclined psychologically to be addicted? P people who are inclined to become addicted are, are, are people who have pain. They don't know how to resolve it. They look outside of themselves to relieve the pain. They don't have resources. They, they don't know how to ask for help. So they tend to want to just numb their pain or to escape from it. And But nobody's born like that. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's born that, you know, there's no... Weakness or uh, something like this that would no lead way. you to... I would say weakness or something like this that would lead you... Lead weakness you to, is a judgment. Yeah. Or what know, would be the good I mean, word? I mean, I mean the word? when I look at the lives of the people that I worked with, how can I call them weak? Yeah. When I look at what they survived, yeah. and um, when I look at how they survived, I mean, you can call it weakness, but it's, believe me, living in the streets of Vancouver... It's not that easy, you know. You, I don't know how to call that weak. Yeah. It's not a weakness. It, it's it's um, they're overwhelmed, you know. Yeah. Unless you put yourself in the same life that they had, you will know what what weakness is, you know, or strength is. To be a bit more um, scientific, what's a part of uh, genetics in addiction? There are no genetic bases. There's no genetic. Okay. No genetic. Okay. There's no addiction genes. Now look. I know what I'm saying now is quite contrary to what most uh, addiction doctors would say, but they haven't, they haven't really thought, thought about it. They just accepted the, the medical ideology. Nobody's ever identified a single gene for addiction, which means that if you have this gene, you're going to be addicted. Okay. If you don't have it, you can't be. Nobody's ever identified a group of genes that if you have these genes, you'll be addicted. And if you don't have them, you can't be addicted. There's no such genes. Every once in a while, they think they've discovered something, then they have to retract it, saying, no, we didn't discover anything. This happens all the time. There are some genes that make it more likely that you become addicted, but they don't cause you to be addicted. What are those genes? They're not for addiction, because if they were, then everybody with those genes would be addicted, but they're not. The more pain you have, the more likely you will want to escape from the pain by some addictive behavior. Now, some people have more pain. So if I hit myself on the arm right now, there's no pain at all. But if there was a burn here and my nerve endings were close to the surface and now I tap myself with the same force, I'd have severe pain because the nerve endings were close to the surface. That means I was more sensitive. Now, some people are born more sensitive. Sensitive from the Latin word sincere to feel. The more they feel, and for these painful circumstances, the more pain they have. The more pain they have, the, the more they need to escape from the pain. Which is why, by the way, so many artists and actors and so on have addictions. Because to be an artist and a creative person, what do you have to be? You have to be very sensitive. sensitive. That sensitivity also means that if there's pain in your life, particularly in your childhood, you're going to feel more pain. That means you have more need to escape from it. But you've not inherited is a gene for addiction. You inherited a gene for sensitivity. Now, it may be true that addictions run in families, like alcoholism may run in family, but it's not genetically passed on. What is being passed on is the trauma. So, I mean, if your father's addicted, what's it like to be a child? Or if, or if your father's an alcoholic, what's it like to be a child in an alcoholic home? Very painful. Is there a tendency to reproduce the addiction of the parent? Well, yeah, they can certainly show yeah. that alcoholism, for example, tends to run in families. 
but it's that doesn't make it genetic. Yeah. I mean, if, if, you know, it's a behavior. It, yeah, it, it's what happens is is that each generation creates pain for the next, mm-hmm. and then that generation then also wants to escape the pain through addiction. As we navigate the complex web of generational pain and its potential impact on our children's futures, it's natural to wonder what leads to addiction in the next generation. Many of us worry about the screens during their early years and the risk of substance abuse down the road. Some closely observe, offer guidance and monitor the friends all in a quest to protect the kids. But according to Dr. Gabor Maté, the roots of this issue often lie deeper. So, what exactly characterizes a family that's at higher risk of nurturing a child who may battle addiction in the future? I pose this crucial question, and Gabor's insights are both eye-opening and essential for all of us who care about the well-being of the next generation. Family in which there's trauma, which is not healed or resolved in one generation, it's almost inevitable that they're going to pass it on to the next generation. And so it's the trauma that's being passed on, it's the pain, it's the wounding. That's what's being passed on. That then creates the template for addiction. Now, again, not everybody who's traumatized becomes addicted, but everybody addicted was traumatized. How do you know, as a parent, that uh, you have a child who could be potentially addicted, How do you recognize it? Are there some signs you can read? Children rarely get addicted because they don't have access to substances. But these days, kids, you know, you know what they get addicted to? They get addicted to the, to the screen, yeah, to the internet. And actually, they've done studies. Uh, not only that, um, digital companies deliberately target the brains of children. I'm not making this up. They actually, it's called neural marketing. They, they target the nervous systems of kids in order to get them hooked. And then you could do brain scans on these kids, and they look like the brain scans of people who are addicted yeah. uh, in some ways. And so that kids, what are the signs? If you have a kid, and if you ask them to stop watching television or to get off the computer or to stop playing a, the video game after five hours or two hours or, you know, and they react like you're trying to separate them from their lover, you've got an addicted kid. So I noticed so, that the boys are, are look for me, and the boys, I, I've got an eight-year-old eight child, and I noticed that him and his friends are more addicted uh, yeah. to screen than girls. Yeah. Is it a tendency, real tendency? or? Well, again, if, if kids are, if you try and stop the behavior, and an addict gets very angry with you when you try and separate them from yeah. their... If a kid gets angry with you and acts like you're trying to get between them and their substance, they have an addiction. Okay, but it's impossible. Do you think it's because they have a trauma or it's a different kind of thing? Well, you have to understand trauma can be severe and obvious, like abuse, like the women that I worked with that I mentioned. But trauma means a wound, and people can be wounded without abuse. So a lot of kids in this society are wounded not because anybody did bad things to them, but because they didn't get the attention and love they needed because okay. their parents were too busy and uh, they're too stressed. 
too preoccupied or trying to make a living or fighting too much or yeah. Right. So then kids will try and look for that love somewhere. So they'll go to Facebook, so that people will like them, so that people will have they'll have friends, so called. Then they get hooked. So the solution is to give more connection to them. Absolutely. So if I were a parent these days, I wouldn't let my kid go near a screen until they're until I'm really sure that they're connected to me primarily. I, I can actually regulate their behavior. So if I can, if I have a six-year-old, I might give him a zero screen. Well, I, if I were raising kids these days, I would have no screen for six, seven years. Honest to God, I would not. And don't worry, they're not going to fall behind. They can easily catch up when they need to. But look, I mean, would you go with alcohol to a child? No, never, yeah. Because they're not well, ready. They're not French, ready. though, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. in France they do, no, no. don't they? But not too much, right? No, and, yeah. and only under parental control. Yeah, yeah. So as long as the parents are in charge and they can regulate it. But that's not what happens. What happens in this culture is that two-year-olds and one-year-olds get cell phones and video games. Or even in a restaurant, you see a family and everybody's on their screen. Yeah, scrolling, yeah. Yeah, very addictive for kids. What about teenagers? We know the, um, the love extreme situations uh, yeah. to discover alter state also. <coughs> This yeah. is kind of the perfect moment for an addiction to develop and uh, what to do as a parent to guide them. Well, again, look, the problem is, is there connection to the parent? If there's sufficient connection to the parent, then the child will follow the parental guidance. And if the child feels, or the teenager feels sufficiently secure in themselves, they don't need to turn to the screen to have friends and people like them who don't even know them, you know? So it all has to do with how comfortable they feel in themselves and how connected they are to the adults. Is there a good language for um, a teenager, for example, addicted to, uh, to cannabis? Because I know a lot of people are complaining, moms are complaining about their children, uh, a bit addicted to cannabis. Well, yeah. Well, a lot of teenagers are addicted to cannabis, but why are they addicted? Because it calms them down, for one thing. So why do they have to be calmed down? Because they're not the stress inside. Or they do it to connect with their friends at any cost. But why do they have to connect to their friends? because they don't feel sufficiently okay in themselves, and they're not enough connected to the adults in their lives. They might have ADHD, and uh, cannabis uh, soothes the hyperactive brain. Okay, It's yeah. a kind of self-medication. But, you know, marijuana, like everything else, can become quite addictive. So what do you do with a child? Uh, you reconnect also to the same uh, thing? But it doesn't need an intervention, yeah, special intervention, a bit stronger than connection. Well, uh, trouble is most specialists, they don't really understand about trauma or human connection. You know, so for them, it's all about how to control the behavior. But the behavior is only a symptom. And yeah, so the fundamental issue with any teenager who is addicted to anything is first to establish a connection with them where they trust you. Until they do, there's nothing you can do. As we're diving deep into a topic that affects so many lives across the world, let's talk about numbers. In the United States, one in seven adults, 22 million people, struggle with some form of substance use disorder. Young adults aged 18 to 25 are battling addiction at the highest rate 
among any age group, with approximately one in five affected. In 2021, drug overdose death hit an all-time high. The most common culprits behind these tragic losses are opioids, including prescription painkillers and heroin. Let's talk about different kinds of addictions before asking what are the first steps to cure them. Let's start with um, the topic of pornography. What's the best way for a wife or a partner to respond? It's not for me to tell somebody else how to react, but the partner has to decide. Well, first of all, is the addicted partner willing to recognize that they have a problem? Because if they're not, there's nothing that can be done. You can't help somebody who, who doesn't want help. You know, there's an expression in English, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah. Well, you can't even lead the horse to water. You know, it doesn't want to come, it's not going to come. If the partner is not willing to see the problem, then the wife has a decision to make. The one, can I be with this person with their porn addiction, or can I not be? Either is reasonable as far as I'm concerned. I'm not here to say which it should be. Yeah. The wife could say, well, that's his problem. As long as he treats me decently and he's honest with me and doesn't lie about it and... Um, It's not eating up the family money, and he's a good father. You know, I mean, the wife could say that, and then let him deal with it or not deal with it. But it's not my issue. Or the wife could say, "I can't stand it. The idea upsets me too much. It makes me sick. I don't want to be around it." That's legitimate too. What is useless is to stay and try and change the other person. Uh, can't be done. All you're going to get is more resistance and more pressure and all kinds of conflict. So to leave or to stay, that's anybody's call. But to stay and try and change the addicted person, that's a doomed project. Yeah, in general, addiction, you have to delete yourself. That's yeah. what you mean. Yeah, Yeah, and, and, and if you keep trying to change the other person, that's what makes you codependent. And, and that means that you're dependent on the other person. Yeah. for you to feel okay. Okay. Which means that you're addicted to something. Okay, and then you're destroying two lives instead of one also. Well, you're not destroying the other life. That's not your responsibility. But you're certainly making yours very miserable. And you're creating pain for the other one, yeah. Uh, let's talk about alcohol now. I noticed that uh, in the United States or in specific categories of uh, people very focused on health, they stop drinking. But uh, in lots of places and uh, countries, it's um, France, for example, of course, um, it's very accepted to drink because it's a natural product in a way. Yeah. And it's very old, sophisticated, uh, art de vivre. And that um, when you try to reduce alcohol, because now I'm getting older, it gives me headaches. People even look at you like a traitor, like, uh, or you're being boring. What's your view on alcohol and when does it become an addiction? Why to a certain point it's... Um, accepted it's an addiction if it you're using it to escape and it creates problems and you don't give it up then at that point it's an addiction if it doesn't create problems it's okay and if you're not using it to escape but you know it's enjoyable you know okay temporary conscious escape you know relaxation well, that's okay but if you're relying on it constantly and it's creating problems in your life you have a problem the issue is not how much how you're drinking how much you're drinking how often somebody says well you know I only drink once a month, but every once a month I get so blasted that I can't drive. And I, you know. But liking to be tipsy is an addiction or not? Well, not necessarily. 
I mean, if you're regularly tipsy and if it interferes with your life, you are an addiction. But if you decide once a month, okay, I'm going to put everything aside, I've taken care of my responsibilities, I've left enough space for myself to sleep it off afterwards, and I'm going to get high on alcohol, we'll do it. If you can really do that way. But most people who think they can do it are not honest with themselves. There was a tribe, Herodotus, the uh, Greek historian, wrote about it. We're talking, we're in Turkey right now, and there's a tribe here in the Near East somewhere that he talks about where the elders had to make a decision for the whole community. If they were sober when they made the decision, then they would drink. And if they still agreed with themselves when they were drunk, then they would hold to the decision. On the contrary, if they made the decision when they were drunk, then they'd sober up and they had to agree with themselves then. There used to be this Latin expression, in vino veritas, in, yeah. in, in wine there is yeah. truth. Well, there is, to some, that's true okay. to some degree, because it disinhibits you. Let you let go a bit, yeah. Yeah, so that could be okay. And there's a difference between alcohol use, and in ancient times, there was alcohol, and people would get drunk. But there was even festivals where people would get drunk. Yeah. The bacchanalia, and so yeah. on. But that they weren't necessarily addicted. So that in England... The gene craze started with industrialism and capitalism. When people were thrown off the land, peasants were thrown off the land, they lost their communities, they lost their, they lost their fields and their ways of making a living. They had to go work in these terrible factories. That's when people started getting addicted okay. in a big way. So addiction is also tied very much to social factors. So in the United States right now, last year, over 100,000 people died of overdoses, over 100,000, which means that in one year, more Americans died than had died, twice as many Americans died almost, as had died in the Vietnam, Afghan, and Iraqi wars put together. When you look at what's driving that, massive dislocation, loss of meaningful jobs for young white males, loss of meaning, loss of community, loss of connection, dislocation, that's called dislocation, yeah. when, you, when, you, when your sense of belonging and purpose is lost, that drives addictions. Yeah. You know, so it's not just individual trauma, it's also social factors. What about um, mushrooms, LSD, um, these drugs um, that are known to increase also your uh, consciousness? Yeah. In a way, I had an expert of uh, psychedelics on this podcast, and she said that when drugs are being taken recreationally, it can help. Uh, therapeutically, what is the border? <laughs> well, first of all, I don't call them drugs. Okay. They're medicines, and there's a difference. Okay. Drugs like Prozac or tranquilizers or anti-cancer drugs, you know, they're meant to change the biology of your body, which could be a good thing. Okay. But, for example, psychiatric drugs like Prozac or like antipsychotics, you know, they are not designed to deal with the fundamental problem, designed just to deal with the symptoms. And they only work as long as you take them. So there's nothing healing as such about taking Prozac. Yeah. It may be a good thing. Makes you function, yeah. It makes you functional, otherwise you yeah. couldn't be, could actually prevent severe depression. I mean, there's some, there's always some risk of suicide with these drugs, but actually they can also prevent suicide, you know. But anyway, the point is they only work as long as you take them. 
but they don't provide any healing. They might provide the opportunity for healing, but there's no healing as such. And in most cases, when people are subscribe, subscribe these drugs or prescribe these drugs, there's not much else that happens. Now, the psychedelic medicines, in the traditional sense, where indigenous people first developed them, like the, like the ayahuasca or the peyote, they were medicines. Nobody was meant to take them forever, every day. They were ceremonial medicines, where, which were meant to heal you, to make you more complete. As to their therapeutic potential, it depends on who's using them, in what context, and with what intention. You can take LSD just to get high and get stoned and have a trip, and you know some people do that, but there's nothing therapeutic about it. But it's also possible to take LSD in a therapeutic context with a guide uh, that knows what they're doing as a way of getting to know yourself better. And that could be a very powerful adjunct to healing. And so I've seen all kinds of healing, or at least progress towards healing, with the use of psychedelics, LSD, mushrooms, ayahuasca, iboga, peyote, and MDMA, and so on. But it all depends on the context and the yeah. intention. And what's uh, the best way to cure an addiction? Well, the first thing is to get that you got one, just to acknowledge it. So, I mean, that's the first step in the 12-step programs. That's the first step. You just, I'm powerless over this. This is bigger than me. It's creating a problem in my life that I can't control. So the first step is just a recognition. The second step for me is what I've already asked you or raised in this conversation is, what is it doing for me? Like, what, what is lacking in my life that the behavior or the substance is, you know, like pornography, for example, um, it gives you a temporary hit of excitement. And it actually releases a chemical in the brain that cocaine and crystal meth and caffeine and nicotine also release, called dopamine. And dopamine is necessary for vitality in the sense of being alive. So the, the born good, addict yeah, yeah. just wants to feel alive. Yeah. The question is, why don't they? You know, so, the, so the second question is, what's it doing for me? Third is, why is that third thing missing in my life? What happened to me? How did I lose that vitality? You know, and then how do I get it back? These are simple questions not so easy to do. Then for substance addicts, there's also the problem of withdrawal, you know, physical withdrawal, which is where when you stop using something, you start having some pretty negative effects. This can happen with heroin. It's really awful. The withdrawal, the alcohol withdrawal after a prolonged binge can be really awful. Cocaine is not as awful, but it's really difficult, you know. So... Yes, so you have to deal with whatever physical withdrawal symptoms may, there may be. Um, but ultimately, it's taking responsibility uh, and healing the trauma, the pain that's driving it. So first you heal the trauma, yeah. or, and then you deal with addictions, or can you do a bit of both at the same time? No, if, if, if you have no trauma, there's no reason to be addicted. If there's no pain, there's no reason to numb the pain. Yeah, so, yeah. No, but if you have an addiction, can you Oh, can try, you work on... Can you, yeah, can you work oh, on the yeah, addiction yeah, at yeah. the same you time? Work, you you work trauma. both on the... You work both on the behavior and on the pain that's driving the behavior at the same time, yeah. And if you don't have access to a therapist for any reason, but you feel you have the beginning of a motivation 
uh, and strengths to fight against an addiction, where should you start alone? What are the, um, the first steps? To well, if you don't have access to a therapist, there's still lots of literature that you can read, including, if I may say so, my books. Um, Which one in particular? Well, the, the one on addiction is called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. But my most recent book, The Myth of Normal, also talks about addiction. There are lots of material online, lots of talks. I, I have, I personally have lots of talks on YouTube. Nobody has to pay anything, sign up for anything. And I've been told by many people that just watching them has made a huge difference for them, you know. Um, then there are self-support groups, 12-step groups. 12 steps are not for everybody, but they've helped a lot of people. Um, other self-support groups these days it's not impossible for anybody to find some support out there I'm going to ask you the last question uh, of this interview it's a harvest of the day if there is one thing that gives you hope what is it? in relationship to addiction or in general? Maybe to addiction, if you have something about addiction, but in general, I think anything you choose. Well, actually, the answer would be the same thing. Uh, inside everybody, inside every human being, is there's a powerful healing drive, there's a powerful urge to become whole again, to grow, to learn, and so on. And um, that's inside everybody. And I've seen people with severe addictions, and, and even people who've committed some pretty terrible things to serve their addictions. But I've seen them heal, I've seen them take responsibility, I've seen them not only become sober, but become really kind, generous human beings. So I just believe in people. Thank you, Gabor Maté. You're welcome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Dr. Gabor Maté's insights about a difficult topic, but so important, addictions. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram Harvest Series. Next episode will be five minutes with Idris Abakan, specialist in neuroscience. Until next time. <laughs>